0: gateway uh, if you have a Bible why don't you go ahead and grab that we are going to be in first Corinthians chapter 9 today And while you're looking for that, we are in the second week of a brand new series entitled The Missio Dei, which is Latin for the mission of God. That's what we've been looking at. And the mission statement here at Gateway is this, helping people to love and serve Jesus. The very core, the foundation of who we are as a church is we want to be fully devoted to helping people come to know Jesus in a personal way and for them to grow in sanctified living. That means looking more like Jesus. And the expression of that, how we say that, is helping people to love and serve Jesus and we have a few plumb lines we have a few pithy statements that we use to help articulate what that mission looks like if we're actually on mission or if we've teetered off course and last week we looked at the first rendition of that which was we prioritize the gospel above all else which seems self-evident it seems like well yeah isn't the sky blue you know kind of thing and yet we learned last week that there's quite a few competitors ...that are at play due to our sin nature, the traitor within, that really compete with this value. And so, what we learn from Jesus, what we learn from the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Apostles... ...is that they prioritize over and above every other thing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to be looking at this week is the second value, and it is this. We do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel... We do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. And so I want to start off today with a question to you. And the question is this. What is the passion of your life? What's the priority of your life? What drives you to wake up in the morning every single day? What is the passion of your life? And the reason why I'm asking you that question is because what we're going to see today is the answer to that question according to to our Heavenly Father, according to Jesus. My favorite chapter in all of Scripture has to be Luke chapter 15, in which Jesus gives a series of stories, three stories in particular, that outline the heart of God for his people, and especially those who are far from him. Let me just very quickly share these three stories with you. The first is a story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, And one of them falls away. It it gets lost. And what we learn from the story is that the heart of the shepherd isn't, oh, I lost a sheep. That's a 1% attrition rate. Uh, I, I still have 99. Not a big deal. No, does he not put the 99 in a safe place and then go searching high and low, day and night, until he finds his lost sheep. He puts the sheep over his shoulders and he brings it home and he reaches out to the whole community and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And and there we see the heart of God, that that God loves his people, and he desperately longs for those who are lost to come back to him. The second story that he gives is of a woman who has lost a coin, and in in this instance, we learn that it's 10% of her inheritance, 10% of everything that she has. You might not go searching for a lost penny. But she searches high and low, day and night. She sweeps her whole house in order to find her lost coin. And when she finds it, she brings the whole community together and she says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And the third and final story is the story of uh, another lost thing, but this time it's with a twist. This time it's not passively lost, like the sheep or like the coin. It's something that loses itself. It's the story of a lost son who comes up to his father and he says, I no longer want to be part of this family. I have no interest in this family. I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance so that I can leave. And then he leaves to a far distant country. But the heart of the father is this. Even though his son has shamed him in the most gratuitous of ways, he looks out his window every single day longing for his son to come home. And when he does, he doesn't berate him. He runs to him. He runs to him, and when he reaches him, he smothers him with hugs and kisses, and he slobbers all over him, and the Greek says, he fell down on his neck, and he says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost son. And the message is clear from all three stories. The message is this, lost people matter infinitely to God. They matter infinitely to God. And and Jesus makes this abundantly clear in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, when he says this, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so, Gateway, just think about this for a second. What this means is, even for us as a church, 700 members, and imagine the day, I'm looking forward to this day, in which all of us can return to this place and we can all together sing God's praises like the praise team led us today, but we're all going to be in the same place and we will be elevating our voices together. I can't wait until that happens, but the heart of God is as beautiful as that'll be. The one thing that brings more rejoicing in heaven than even that is when one person comes to know jesus when one lost person is found and that is why we say we do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel that's the heart of god and see i I wanted to start here because what i'm going to be sharing with you today i think is going to pinch I think as we read through 1 Corinthians 9, I, I think some of us are gonna say, that's that's in scripture? <laughs> is that true? Or maybe when, when we expressed our, our second plumb line or second value, say, do, do we really believe that? But I think what we have to have at the forefront is this foundation we have to see with the eyes of God. And so my hope for you, what I've been praying for you this week is this. That as we enter into this message today, you wouldn't be listening with your own eyes. I wouldn't be listening with the ears of Justin, but with the ears of God. With the eyes of God. That you would see the gospel of Jesus through his eyes and with his heart. And so with that, I, I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19. You got it there? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 starting at verse 19. Here's what it says. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Interesting. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so that we might win those not having the law. And to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Indeed, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And so what I want to do with you today is I want to walk through this passage, help us come to grips with what it's saying and how it affects every single church and every single Christian, or at least how it ought to affect every single Christian as we approach our mission mandate in the world, as we try to proclaim the excellencies of him who has sent us out into the world for the sake of his kingdom mission. And in order for us to do that, what we need to see this as is a bit of a, a tactical guide. The Apostle Paul says, this is our mission, this is how I did it. And as we look at that, we can say, Gateway, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us as a church to, to put on this value and to live it out on a day-to-day basis? So let's just walk through this together again. Look at verse 19. I want to read the first half of verse 19. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. I got that underlined in my Bible. A slave to everyone. So here's what I put in your note sheet. This is what I wrote. Paul's principle for Christian living, the motivating force as to why you wake up in the morning, what drives you more than anything else in the world, ought to be this. To be a slave to everyone. To be a volunteer slave to everyone. And we look at that and we say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? To be a slave to all? And Paul says, yes. That ought to be the motivating force of our life. Because of his great love for me and because of my indebtedness to the gospel of Jesus and his salvation work through what he had done on the cross, his incredible mercy for me, I will make myself a volunteer slave to all. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says this, I did not come into the world to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Paul says, if I'm to follow Jesus, I'm to follow suit. I'm to do exactly the same thing. And so what Paul says is, I'm going to change my lifestyles, I'm going to change my habits, I'm going to change and give away my preferences and my behaviors, I'm going to give it all away for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus. I'm going to give it all away and I'm going to become a volunteer slave to everyone for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so that's the principle, to be a, be a slave to all. But then the next question is, why would we do that? right? Why would we become volunteer slaves to everyone? And that's the second half of verse 19. He says this, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To win As many as possible. And later he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So here is the why that I put in your note sheet. Why do I become a slave to all? To win as many as possible to Christ by any means possible this side of sin. To win as many as possible by any means possible this side of sin. Paul says, I would do all of that for one purpose. That I could have the eyes of God and find those who are lost and to bring them back home. Scripture is abundantly clear. We are not the ones who bring salvation into the lives of people. Paul says, you know, I'm the one who planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's the word of Scripture. God is always the one who gives the growth. But are you willing to plant the seed? Are you willing to put the water in the soil? Are you willing to do the good work of seeking to produce a harvest so that God can do the work that he does? And so the Apostle Paul, he says, I have rights, but I've laid them all down. He says the same thing in uh, 1 Corinthians 9.15 when he says this. I have not used any of these rights. So for two straight chapters... The Apostle Paul is talking about all the rights and the privileges that he has, both from a worldly and civil perspective, and also from a spiritual perspective, that Christ has defeated the power and the effects of the law. And so on account of that, we are free in Jesus Christ. And then he says, I have not made use of any of these rights. What is he saying? It's almost like he's saying exactly the same thing that we started off with today. We do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. And then, he actually gives us a series of examples on what this would look like, practically speaking, for us to do this in the world And again, as I share this first uh, point with you, what this means for us as a church at Gateway, my hope for you is that you can see this through the eyes of Jesus and not through our our own self-interest. And so what it means for us as a church, if we're going to put this on the same way the Apostle Paul is, is we would say something like this, our mission to the lost trumps the comfort or the preferences of our members, Or at least that's something we we ought to say that our mission to the lost trumps our individual preferences. It trumps our individual desires. It trumps our individual longings. And we lay all those things down for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Would we do that? Look again at verse 20. Paul says to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. And to those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. Why? So as to win those under the law. So he gives this first example, and it's the Jews. And notice that once again, he's giving the restatement of this principle that to the Jews, I will act like a Jew. I will be all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might win some. And see how practical this is? The Apostle Paul says, I'm going to get inside a group, I'm going to figure out their customs and their actions and their practices and their preferences, and I'm going to try to get in on the inside and be like a Jew for the sake of the Jews and for the sake of winning the Jews. And let me just put some teeth on this for a second. Let let me just try to help make this real by giving a few examples of what Paul was doing during this time when he was writing 1 Corinthians. And in order to do that, we're going to have to turn to the left and find the book of Acts. And I'd love for you to turn there with me. I'd love for you to be reading along as we take a look at this. And the first real example that we find is in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 1. And so here's an instance in which the Apostle Paul is on a missionary journey, and he is preaching to the Jews And he is trying to communicate to them that everything that they have believed for hundreds of years has now been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. But he wants to bring a gentleman by the name of Timothy with him. But there's a few issues that Timothy has to face in order for his witness to be effective. So here's what it says. Acts chapter 16 verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And so what that means is, in that day, they would treat him as a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Greek, very low status in that community. The believers at Lystra and Iconium, they spoke well of him, so he has a good reputation— and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So Paul wants to bring Timothy, but he knows that his effectiveness to minister in this place is going to be hampered by the fact that he's half Jew and half Greek. And here's what we find out in verse 3. He's uncircumcised. So, he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was Was a Greek, and as they traveled from town to town, they delivered their decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And so, this is critical the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. Like, we don't have to Uh, meditate on this for too long, but I just want to share with you something that I find so remarkable. We have learned from the New Testament that the sign of circumcision has been done away with. The new sign of the covenant is baptism, not circumcision. And the Apostle Paul has repeatedly said this in his letters. In fact, let me just give you two examples of this. Galatians chapter 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value useless, doesn't have any value at all. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself out through love. That's pretty clear, right? And then he says the same thing a chapter later. He says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So it's the Apostle Paul who has made it abundantly clear where he has says, He has said circumcision has zero value. Absolutely none at all. We don't have to get circumcised any longer. And yet he tells Timothy, hey buddy, you got to get circumcised. And I'm going to do it. Why? Why? Why would he tell Timothy to do that? And here's the answer. For the Jews... Being circumcised was a sign of being a part of the covenant community. It was a sign of your heritage. And Timothy, being this half Jew, this half breed, it would hamper his ability to witness to the Jews. And because they have taken on this principle of becoming all things to all people so that by all possible means they might win some, they say, here's what you've got to do, Timothy. You've got to get circumcised. By the way, extremely painful, but you've got to do it. And I think of, uh, if you've ever watched the movie Shrek, Lord Farquaad, when he tells all the knights to go off and to kill themselves, he says, that is a sacrifice I am willing to make. And so Paul, he says, I am willing to tell you, you better go and get circumcised. Make it happen. Why? So that you can be effective in reaching the Jews who are far from Jesus. That's the principle. And Timothy says, all right, I'll do it. And we see the fruit of the ministry, don't we? More people come to know Jesus... And they're strengthened in the faith. It means we we, we see more disciples and we see better disciples. They're growing in Jesus on account of their ministry. And so I I just want to encourage you. Keep that as kind of the, the standard in your mind for what it means to be uncomfortable. I feel like if, uh, if Timothy came to a lot of churches in the Western world today, he would beg and plead with them and say, please, when it comes to little things that you prefer, like music style and preference, please don't complain about those things. I was willing to get circumcised on account of this. And so here's the question that I have for you. Even though God hasn't called anyone to do exactly what Timothy thought, or what Timothy had to do that I know of, would you? Would you? Would you be willing to set aside your own personal preferences, your own ego, your own longings, even your own physical health for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to do that? Let me just give you one more example of this, which is in Acts chapter 21. So if you're in Acts 16, start turning to the right and find Acts 21, Verse 17, just to help us make sure that Paul isn't just talk, walk in, or talking the talk, but he's walking the walk. He himself is willing to do these things as well. Verse 17, here's what happens. When we arrived at Jerusalem, that, that's the apostle Paul and his team, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. He's a local pastor there, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them. And reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed. And all of them are zealous for the law of Moses. Circle that, highlight it, underline it. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to their customs. So stop right there for a second. There's approximately 650 Old Testament laws and customs that have now been done away with, they have been fulfilled through the person and the work of Jesus. One example of this is when uh, the Apostle Peter receives a sign from God, a big cloak comes down and says, you can now eat pigs, for instance. You can now have your bacon. But there's still a lot of Jews who say, we don't eat bacon. We're we're not supposed to eat that kind of stuff. There's other laws and customs that they used to be following, and Paul says you don't have to do that any longer. That's what they're talking about here. And so he's getting a bad reputation with the Jews on account of him saying, you don't have to do those things anymore. So here's what they say. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. The elders are going to tell Paul to do something here. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Like, do you see what they're saying? So, James, the local pastor, and all the elders of this local church, they're saying, you're getting a bad reputation, Paul, telling all these Jews that they no longer have to engage in all these purification rites. And you're right, but it's hampering our witness, our ability to minister about Jesus on account of these things. And so here's what you have to do. We want you to engage in a series of purification rites. We want you to shave your head. We want you to engage in these Jewish laws and customs that are more abiding to the Old Testament that Jesus has already fulfilled. And, and, and here's what we would probably think that the Apostle Paul would say. Paul stood up against the elders of Jerusalem and said, How dare you? Why are you still bound to the law of Moses? We are free. Christ has fulfilled the law. I will not follow any Old Testament purification rites. All right, everything I just said is not true. All right, it, But it's something we might think that he would say. Because he says, we don't have to do those things. Why would we do those things? And instead, here's what Paul says. Look at verse 26. This is the truth. The next day, Paul took the men. He purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul says, I will be all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. Anything, this side of sin, I am willing to do. I'm willing to do these things if it means a greater effectiveness in reaching the lost. And so I think the principle that we can look at here is this. Why offend or give any reason to push away the very people we intend to reach? Aside from our personal preferences. Aside from our own ego. In fact, the Apostle Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, he says this, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything. Circle, highlight, underline that word. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus. So listen, here's a few things that we say we believe as Christians, that, that I think we give lip service to, but I think it would have a profound effect if we truly 100% believe these things. So let me share three fundamental doctrines that we believe as Christians. Number one, all people are made to live forever. Number two, there is a heaven and a hell, and everyone will spend eternity somewhere. And number three, Jesus Christ is the only way We believe those three things. And if we believe those three things, would we not, like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus as he has expressed to us in Luke chapter 15, be willing to do anything and everything, this side of sin, in order to win them? In order to bring them into a right relationship with Jesus? You know, Jesus is the one who said that our life is a mist. And so, would we be willing to set aside our, our personal preferences and priorities and longings and wants for the sake of a greater opportunity to witness? I, I put it this way. The mist that is my earthly life is far less important than my lost neighbor's eternity. It's far more important than my lost neighbor's eternity. And, and for that reason... The Apostle Paul said that our mission to the lost trumps the comfort of Timothy. Our mission to the lost trumps Paul's personal preferences. Our mission to the lost ought to trump our personal preferences here as well. And so that's the first thing we value. And, and, and here's the second point. Our mission to the lost is for all people in our city And not just our kind. And this is where I ended last week. I shared with uh, you that one of the competitors to putting the gospel above all else is our own preferences. And and one of the ways that we can know that we're a church on mission, in, in a weird way, is if we actually start feeling uncomfortable. If we start feeling uncomfortable, that means you've joined a movement of men and women whose sole focus is nothing else other than the mission of Jesus. And so what is going to happen in those types of environments is you are going to see a wide diversity of people. People who come from a different race or a different ethnic group, a different tribe, a different socioeconomic class. Uh, people who have different preferences than you, uh, people who have different musical styles, different social and political preferences, different ministry opportunities that they want to engage in. We start looking very, very different. But the one thing we all share in common is a priority to Jesus. Jesus. See, when Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. The Greek there is panta ta ethne. And the literal translation that we can give is this, all the people groups. So here's what happens. When we are a church that is on mission, we start to look like the community that is around us. We don't look differently you know, it was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. who once said this, and it was in the context of the U.S., but, but I think it is also ringing true here in Canada today. He says, I think it is one of the shameful tragedies of our nation that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in Christianity. And we might look at that and say, like, how can that be? But by the same token, doesn't it make perfect sense? Doesn't it? Say, well, we're different cultures, different race, different preferences, different musical styles. And on account of that, we we found our own cluster of people that we share uh, like-mindedness with. But when we enter into a gospel movement, the only priority that ought to matter is the person and the work of Jesus. And everything else begins to fall away. Everything else becomes Secondary. Look again at your Bibles. We already looked at verse 20 and 21, but continuing on in verse 21, he gives us two more examples. He says to the Gentiles, I will be as though I am a Gentile. I'll act like I'm not under the law of Moses. So he's saying there's still an obligation to the law of Jesus Christ. It's not like I'm willing to deny the law of God or do something that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus or to the Bible, because this is the main priority in my life. But, I'm willing to do anything this side of sin in order to act like a Gentile and get on the inside. And then verse 22, he says, to the weak I will become as though I am weak. And he's not using weak in the way that we tend to think of it. Think of it more as someone with a sensitive conscience. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're having a a conversation with a Jew who still believes that we shouldn't eat bacon and you wanted to take them out to Wendy's and you wanted to buy them a -A Baconator and you say, hey, here, I would love to give you this meal. He says, I can't eat bacon. And you might say, don't you know we are free from that? We're allowed to have bacon. You start entering into a theological argument. Paul says, don't. It's not worth it. The one thing that matters is the opportunity that you have right in front of you to share Jesus. So let's make first things first. He says to the weak, to those with a sensitive conscience, I will appease their conscience and do whatever it takes to make sure that there's no barriers that are keeping them from coming to know Jesus. So here's the question for you today. What possible barriers have you created in your personal life or what possible barriers do we have as a corporate, capital C, church that are inhibiting our ability to minister to the unchurched and the unbelieving? What are those things? And in some way, only you can answer that question, but we can also, in a corporate sense, in a, in a macro sense, ask that question of ourselves as well. So, just putting it on the line for you this morning, I never want to enter into glory... And to stand before God the Father, and for Him to look at me and say, Justin, why were you unwilling to let go of your personal preferences and your personal priorities for the sake of the lost people that I love? I don't want to have that conversation. What I want more than anything else is is to say to God the Father, I want your heart. Give me your eyes. Give me your heart. Turn my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I long to see things the way that you see them. Because when push comes to shove, I think one of the ways that it is truly helpful for us to picture this is to ask ourselves this one question. What would you like the church to look like? What would you like the church's priorities to be? If you, up to this point, did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. I think for for those of us who ask that kind of question, we say, "Oh, I would sure hope that they'd be a church on mission. And I sure hope that they would do everything in their power to help me come to know Jesus. See, it's only when we get on the inside, if we're not careful, and on account of our sin nature, does apathy begin to creep in. But the heart of God is this the longing that we should have is to reach people who are far from God. Look again at verse 22 and 23. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And you know, I think on account of our sin nature, the traitor within, one of the ways we might be tempted to look at this is to say it kind of this way. I want to do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel as long as I get to continue to worship the way I like, doing the things I like, when I like, with the friends that I like. Isn't that true? Can we just like feel that in our gut? That oftentimes we say, I don't want things to change. I'm willing to do whatever it takes for the gospel as long as nothing changes. As long as my preferences are still appeased. But really what Paul is saying is we got to scratch out all of that. And in its place, put this. So that by all possible means, we might win some. And here's where it always starts. If, if you're wondering, like, how can we get to that point? Where it always starts is when God takes a heart of stone and he turns it into a heart of of flesh that he gives us his eyes to see the brokenness in the world. Psalm 126 says this. Oh, I think I lost it. It says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Tears speak of a broken heart of passion. So what this means is, you could have all the tools to share the gospel of Jesus, but you're never going to want to share the gospel if your heart hasn't been changed. If you haven't been melted by all the things that Jesus Christ has done for you. If you don't see the urgency of this matter in your life, then none of it is going to change. And so what you need is a new heart. What you need is a new set of eyes to see this the way that God sees it. What we need is the same perspective of Jesus when he gives us the three parables in Luke chapter 15, like when the one sheep goes off, does he not take the 99 and set them safely aside to go after the lost one sheep? And when he finds that one sheep, does Jesus not tell us that all of heaven rejoices all the more when one sinner repents over 99 persons? Who need no repentance. That's the heart of God. And so here's the third and final point God's mission for the lost that He loves starts with you, it starts with me. And so here's maybe the most important truth that you're gonna hear this weekend doing whatever it takes to reach people means that you take responsibility. To reach people. That's what it means. And you might say, Justin, I, I want to do that, but, but respectfully, that's just not me. I, I don't have those skills. I don't, I don't have those gifts. Well, with respect, what we read in Matthew chapter 4 is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then God has called you to this mission. See, what we believe at Gateway is that ordinary people Are the tools that God uses to reach people who are lost. You are God's plan A. There is no plan B. You are the tip of the gospel spear. That's what the gospel says. And it's not just for churches to do, not just for professional Christians and pastors to do. It's for every single Christian to do. And here's what we know more and more, increasingly, the unchurched and unbelieving are not coming to church. They're not coming to these environments. Do you know where they are? They're in your workplace. They're your neighbors. They're your family members and your friends. I'm certain that for the vast majority of the people watching today, you can think of people that you know of personally who are far from God. And what we believe, what scripture tells us, is that God has placed you precisely where you are for such a time as this for the sake of those who are far from God. You are the only Bible study that they're going to get. And so God has called you to this task. And you might say, but Justin, I just don't know how. I don't know how. Well, here's what I'd like to do uh, for you today before we close. In four weeks, Pastor Marcel is going to lead us further in this topic. But until then, I want to remind you of an initiative that we started only a few months ago. And we call it this, Pray, Invest, Invite. That's our pi-squared initiative. Pray for four people who are far from God. A family member, a friend, a coworker, or a classmate, and a neighbor, or four of one of those categories. Just start praying for four people specifically, by name, who are far from God. Start investing in their lives. And start inviting them to the appropriate next step. Invite them to your life group with sign-ups today. Invite them to church to, to worship and to watch with you. Start investing in their life. And another thing that I would love to uh, draw your attention to is a website that we recently developed entitled gatewaycrc.org forward slash four. You can go there right now and take a look. There's a series of resources that we want to equip you with so that you feel prepared to enter into this new domain for many of us. If you're already doing this, praise God. We want to continue to support you and to encourage you in this effort What I want to do as your pastor is I want to embolden you and to give you such passion that you would start doing this in your life on a day-to-day basis. Because at the end of our days and when our days are done, the Apostle Paul says there's something that our hearts need to be drawn to and he points to it at the end of this passage. Look at verse 24 with me. He says this, Do you not know That in a race, all the runners run. But only one gets the prize. So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will never last. But we do it. To to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Here's my question, Gateway What's the prize? What's the prize? We might look at it and at first glance we might say, well, the prize is a a personal relationship with Jesus. The the prize is eternity with God. and, 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 And that's what he's talking about here. But at further look, look at the context. The Apostle Paul is revealing to us that the prize, according to Paul, is the lost. The prize is people who are far from God. Paul says, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would have a heart for the lost. You would have a passion. It would become the passion of your life to become a volunteer slave to all so that by all possible means, you might win some. And that is why our second value at Gateway is this. We do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, who made a way for us. And I know that for the vast majority of us who are watching today, we already have a personal relationship with you. And we rejoice, we rejoice in knowing that you have called each and every one of us to yourself. And now that we are a part of the covenant family, you have called us to the work of the family, which is to have a heart for our lost brothers and sisters. That we would have an earnest desire to do what the elder brother in Luke 15 never did to leave the house and to search high and low, day and night, until they were found and back home. Lord, give us that heart. Turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to have an earnest desire to do whatever it takes to reach people for the gospel. Give us that desire, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and Redeemer. Amen.